We're about halfway through our study in the Song of Songs, a book dedicated to love. When I think of my high school experience, I think of my best friend's car. He had a Saab coupe, and we went on a lot of adventures. And I think one of the tragedies, the just tragedy of tragedies in this world is that Saab went out of business. But before they went out of business, uh, there was a radio commercial that they put out about why you should buy a Saab 500 coupe. This is what the transcript of this commercial said. I quote, The 17th century New England Puritans were people who devoted their entire lives to work and prayer. They would not have approved of the sensual beauty of the new Saab 500 coupe. The Puritans believed that to have fun was sin. There was no place in their lives for the pleasure and the luxury of the new Saab convertible. For the Puritans, the only reason for living was to sacrifice and prepare for an eternity of holy peace. Aren't you glad you're not a Puritan? See your nearest Saab dealer for more information. It's sort of funny, but Puritans sometimes get a bad name. One contemporary author wrote this, that Puritanism as a movement was the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. It's sort of funny. And yet, I think when it comes to Christianity, sometimes we get lumped into that and we are thought as just the Christian worldview and Christians in general are people who are against pleasure, against beauty. I mean, that was one of the biggest barriers for me when I wasn't a Christian. I remember thinking like, why would I want to be a Christian? I like to be happy. I like to do fun things. I like beauty. I like pleasure. Christianity seems to want to thwart all of those. Why would I want to be a Christian? God just wants to take pleasure away from me. Or at least that's what I thought. Life, from a Christian perspective, I thought was just devoid of pleasure, just work, prayer, and sort of awaiting a joyless eternity, like one of those hallmark angels playing harps in the clouds. Today, we come to the center of the Song of Songs, and it's going to focus on physical intimacy within the context of marriage. And far from the Bible, not talking about pleasure, not talking about beauty, or not talking about subjects that we might think are taboo, don't you just love how the Bible just talks about those hard subjects? The Bible tackles hard subjects including sex. And this morning, as we are going to learn in the Song of Songs, far from the Bible kind of saying, oh, pleasure and physical intimacy is a bad thing, it's actually going to say the opposite. That pleasure, well-ordered, biblically ordered, isn't merely something to be avoided. The Saab commercial that I read earlier is dead wrong. And today you're going to see why. So the big idea is on the screen. This is the best way. I worked so hard on this big idea. If you don't like it, I don't care. This is my physical intimacy is a little bit like heaven, meant to be enjoyed as a gift from God. We're going to unpack that in two parts. But before we do, let's read the text. Go with me to Song of Songs, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. 
Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is like a tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hangs a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twin gazelles that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my broad. Come from me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Ammon and the peak of Siren and Hermon, from the dens of lion and from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garment is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choices, with all its choice fruits. Henna and nard, nard and saffron, calmus and cinnamon with trees of uh, frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh and my spices. I ate my honeycomb and my honey. I drank my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. We ended last uh, a couple weeks ago with a wedding of sorts, with a call for... Uh, a call the woman is saying, go out and gaze about the joy of Solomon on his wedding day. And now, and you've seen this before, scene shifts within this kind of collection of poems, love poems, the scenes shift. And now we have this new scene and no longer is she to look on him. Now he is looking at her. And what we see in verses one to seven, and then again in verses nine to 11 is a description of her beauty. He describes her beauty and what she means to him. Now, this is poetry, okay? It's poetry, and so we have to interpret this according to that genre. Um, so, so some of you love the Babylon Bee, that satirical kind of Christian, uh, uh, you know, they do a lot of things. Well, well, before there was a thing called Babylon Bee, in the 1970s during the Jesus movement, there was a thing called the Wittenberg Door. And it was a Christian satirical newspaper and, and articles. And in 1978, a man drew a picture literalizing this description of Song of Songs from verse 1 to 7 and, and just kind of drew it as a painting. And it's hilarious. I printed it off and I gave it to a few people this week because it's hilarious. She looks hideous, right? She's got goats for hair. Uh, she, she's... You know, she's got like a thread in her uh, lips. She has this extremely long neck because it's a tower. I mean, she's hideous. We can't do that, okay? 
If we literalize poetry, we just brutalize poetry and we miss the point of what the poetry is trying to do. That's not what's going on here. This man is not describing the architecture of this woman. He's not saying, oh, she's five foot seven and she's got this color hair. That's not what's happening. He's doing something else. He's not describing what she looks like. He's describing what she means to him. So go back to verse one. He begins with this statement of beauty we see in verse one and then verse seven. This whole idea is bookended with her beauty. And he repeats it. Your beauty, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. It's like he's saying you're drop dead gorgeous. And then verse one, he describes her eyes like doves. They're peaceful. They, they shine. They glimmer behind a veil. Her hair is like goats leaping down a meadow, flowing down her shoulders with ease. Her teeth are like a flock of sheep and not one is lost. Just think about that. There were really no dentists. So this, 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 this woman's got nice teeth, okay? Which is a big deal, right? No braces necessary. Her lips are plump and crimson red. Her cheeks are like pomegranates, round and youthful. Her, her neck is like a tower of David, meaning it's regal. She's assertive. She's proud. Her breasts are like does, youthful and sprightful. She's young. And then when he, he gets to her, her chest, he just stops. And he just like can't go any further, right? He goes, he starts at the top and starts working down. And he, he's like, he's undone at that point. And then we see this refrain once again in verse 7. He just can't keep his eyes off of her. So what we have in verse 1 to 7, he's describing her beauty. And then if you skip down to verse 9, we have another description of her beauty. But notice, in verses 1 to 7, the the language is he's seeing, he's using that sense, his sight, and then he's writing this poetry. But then in verses 9 through 11, it's not his sight anymore. He's using his smell and his taste. Two other senses. And he describes her smell that's better than anything he's ever smelled. And she tastes better than the sweetest honey that you can get from Buckley. So the poem is using three out of the five senses to describe her beauty and the pleasure that he's receiving as he thinks of her and as he looks upon his bride. Now, why is he doing this? Like, why? What's the point of him doing this? Well, last week I was listening to this podcast and it was basically this interview from this, uh, this female Olympic runner. And the podcast was all about how basically parents are ruining youth sports. But in there, she had this throwaway um, conversation um, about uh, female clothing, particularly women's athletic running outfits, and why women, Olympic runners, Olympic female runners, wear less clothes than men. Ever thought? I'd never thought about this. And she said, well, what actually happened? She gave this interview a history lesson. She said, what happened is when Title IX happened in the, whatever, 60s or 70s, when, when women were going to be equally represented in all sports, a bunch of you know, people came together, particularly men, and said, so how are we going to market women in running when they don't run as fast as men? Their fear was that men were not going to come and watch women's sports. And so you get a bunch of men together and they thought, we got a great idea. Sex sells. So we'll have a uniform in which women will wear less clothes. This had nothing to do with performance. It had everything to do with how we can market women in sports. 
And so I don't know if you, but this week I was feeling this and I was wondering if some of you were going to think, this feels like this man is objectifying this woman, that he's just kind of stripping her down to her body parts. And if you're feeling that way, I'm convinced that is not what is going on here. He's not describing her or comparing her to Barbie. The poetry is meant to do something else. So from her eyes to her chest, he describes seven aspects of her. And seven, poetically speaking, is an intentional number. He's basically saying she's a perfect 10. She's perfect. And earlier in chapter one, we know one thing about her is that she was feeling a lot of physical insecurities. She thought she was an average. She was a six. And yet from his perspective, there is no flaw in her. She's a perfect 10. So this section really isn't about what she looks like. Really, this poetry is functioning to underscore what she means to him. Just look at the imagery, okay? This imagery is actually to point us to, or to get back to my big idea, she is a little like heaven to him. And I'm going to prove that that's what's going on here. So, so if you, you notice, there's three allusions. Almost every verse that I mentioned, verses 1 to 7 and then verses 9 to 11, each verse has an allusion to one of three things. The Garden of Eden, the Tabernacle, or the Promised Land. I'll just point out a few. I wish I could spend the entire morning unpacking this, but go to verse 6. We read, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. That's a clear allusion back to Genesis 2. The cool of the Garden of Eden. And then if you keep reading in verse 6, we have this myrrh and frankincense. Well, those two oils are two oils found, they're anointing oils found in the tabernacle. Then go to verse 11. The imagery of milk and honey. This is the clearest, right? What is described as the land flowing with milk and honey? It's the promised land. It's the promised land. So not only is she beautiful, she's not just gorgeous, He's not saying he, she's just 10 out of 10. He's saying that her beauty is a little bit like the tabernacle. She's a little bit like that. Or let me put it this way. What the promised land was to God's people, she is to him. Or we could put it this way. And this almost teeters on idolatry. It almost as if, it's almost as if he's getting close to worshiping her, but he doesn't. But he's basically saying, Our love feels like Genesis 3 never happened. Our love feels like we're still Adam and Eve, naked and unashamed in the garden with no hint of a curse, no hint of the fall, no sin at all. Or you could summarize it this way in the language of the Bible or in the language of my big idea. To him, she's a little bit like heaven. The Bible says this, or one commentator, I should say, wrote this, that the closest we get back into the Garden of Eden in all the Bible is right here. This is the closest we get. When he sees her, he sees tabernacle. When he sees her, he thinks promised land. When he sees her, he thinks Garden of Eden. So he's not objectifying her. He's actually looking at her through the lens of the Bible. And if you think, well, that's kind of odd. Well, the New Testament does this too. 
I mean, if you go to Ephesians 5, that famous text on marriage, Paul does this very thing. He, he, he writes this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. So he's basically saying, husbands, love your wives through the lens of the gospel. So the gospel is this. If you're walking in here, you're like, what is Christianity all about? What is the gospel? This is what the gospel is. We are all ugly. We are all blemished. We are all tainted with sin. But Christ, who is beautiful, perfectly beautiful, takes on our ugliness and he gives us his beauty such that through faith, through faith that Jesus did this, through his death and resurrection, we now are beautified because of our union with Christ. And so Paul's saying, take that truth, that gospel truth, and look at your husband, or we could apply this to your wife. Look at your spouse through the lens of the gospel. View them as God views them. Love your wives Love your husbands as Christ loves us. See them as God sees them. I think often when we think of sex, when we think of beauty, it's so hard to get our minds out of the proverbial gutter. We've been so discipled by this, by our world, that whether it's some trauma related to maybe purity culture or some trauma related to hookup culture, wherever you are at, it's so hard to think through how do we think about beauty and pleasure without instantly going to the gutter? And yet there's no hint of sin. There's no hint of filthiness because what this man is doing is he's filtering his understanding of what and who she is and the beauty that she is. He's filtering it through the Bible, through scripture. He's taking these biblical ideas, tabernacle, promised land, garden of Eden, and that's the imagery he's using to describe his bride described the person that he loves. This is why he's not objectifying her. And this is why we ought not to objectify anyone. That's sinful. So by way of just application, we, it does us no good to have a standard of beauty where we're comparing each other to Barbie or comparing each other to this level of beauty or that. We have this like, you know, cultural standard of beauty. That is not helpful. That is not honoring to God. There is no hint of that in this text. Instead, when we think about what true beauty is, we should think about it in terms of God. Beauty isn't, isn't inside of us. Actually, beauty is outside. It's God ultimately saying, you are beautiful. And in so doing, when we look at each other as brothers and sisters, we can look at each other through the eyes of Scripture, through the eyes of the gospel and say, you are beautiful. Not in the way the world says it, but in a way that is far greater than that. So physical intimacy, it's like heaven, but I don't know if you noticed, I said it's a little like heaven. It's not heaven. And we see that starting in verse 8. Go to verse 8. In verse 8 and then in verse 12 through 15, the middle section, the author talks about mountains and fountains. That's the imagery. And it's vague. 
it's elusive and you're like, what is, what is the author doing with this mountain imagery, this fountain imagery? Uh, about 80% of it, I have no idea. But I do know this. Whatever's going on here, there is distance. Like there is something unattainable about her beauty. There is something unattainable about their love. There is distance between her and him. So starting in verse 8, five times he calls her bride. Starting in verse 8, all the way down our section. He keeps calling her his bride. But then notice. Notice the poetry. Look, look where she's at in verse 8. She's in Lebanon. Like, how'd that happen? Not only that, she's on a mountain. Lebanon, north of Israel. She's, she's there, and he's calling her down to come down from there. Because there's lions and leopards. There's, there's dangerous animals. So there's distance all of a sudden. There's a mountain between them. And then go down to verse 12 through 15. He, he, he uses kind of this idea of a garden. She's a locked garden. Or she's a fountain. But she's sealed off. Um, some of you have beautiful gardens. I don't. I'm jealous of your gardens. I dream of one day being a gardener. That's, that's the job I want in heaven. I just want to be a gardener. But um, th- th- there's something beautiful about gardens, and we have public gardens, but in the ancient Near East, there were no public gardens. So, y- y- like, only the rich, only the royal had these gardens. And everyone else heard about gardens, but you couldn't go to them. And he's using that language to describe her. It, it, she's like that country club that you can never afford. Like she's like Augusta National. I've heard of it. I've seen it on television, but I could never be a member and I can never walk its course. That's this whole idea here. There's distance between them. She is like a garden locked away. Or she's like a fountain. She's like Ponce de Leon's fountain of youth. But it's sealed. It's hidden. And then in verse 13 through 14, you have all these fruits and spices and garden imagery. Once again, a reminder back in Eden. He, he again applies this Edenic type language and poetry back to her. It's conjuring up Eden once again. And then, just like Eden, he's reminded, oh yeah, our romance is east of Eden. And Eden is locked up, isn't it? When sin entered our story in Genesis 3, the gates of Eden were closed, locked. Actually, cherubim, angels with flaming swords, guarded and protected Eden. It was not safe for them to go back to the Garden of Eden. It was protected. No longer were they welcome. No longer were any of us welcome. And so this whole section in verse 8 and verse 12 to 15, whatever it's saying, one thing is clear. Physical intimacy in marriage might be like heaven, but it's only a little bit because there's always distance. In a post-Eden relationship, there is always going to be sin. The haunting reminder of distance between a man and a woman or any relationship. Now, we don't need to know specifically what the distance was. Maybe this was just a flashback to before they were engaged. That's probably right. But whatever it is, it doesn't really matter, does it? So whether you're single longing for physical intimacy or you're married and longing for physical intimacy, 
and everywhere in between. This is a reminder that though sex might be a little bit like heaven, emphasize, underline, little. It isn't heaven. And to make it heaven, to worship sex, you're going to perpetually be disappointed. I don't know how to undo this paradox, but what our text is doing is basically saying sex is underrated and at the same time it's overrated. And a paradox is, is just truth standing on its head, calling for attention, as one author put it. So I'll just leave it at that. So what do we do about this? How do you untie that knot? How do you at one sense not worship physical intimacy while at the same time uh, putting it in its proper biblical context? That's how it ends. It ends with, I think, giving us the tool or the key to unlock this tension, to untie the knot that this poem begins to kind of tie up for us. So in verse 8, verse 8 is the hinge of part 1 and part 2. So he invites her to come away with him, right? Twice he says, come away with me, and then he says, depart with me. This is an invitation to love. And you might go, oh, so it's like building up this tension. What's she going to do? Is she going to respond? He invites her to love, but he's got to wait. All he can do is send an invitation. He's got to wait for her to respond. And luckily, we don't have to wait long. Go down to verse 16. This is the sort of final movement of our poem. I think in one sense, you might think like, oh, it's just going to happily ever after. And in one sense, that's how this poem ends. So chapter 4, verse 16 is the literal middle of the book. There are 111 verses before it and 111 verses after it. So all of it's moving towards this moment, verse 16. And he's, finally, she speaks. Right? I've said this all along. She is the major character in this book. It's not him. It's her. She speaks more. She's the more important character. And here at the literal middle of the book, she speaks again. And she describes herself as a garden, as this Edenic image keeps going on. And then she, she summons the winds from the north, south, east, and west to just blow upon their love to him. It's beautiful. She's announcing that their love is no longer locked. They're married now. And then notice that there's a pronoun change and not the kind that our culture talks about. Look look at it. There's a pronoun change because it's no longer her garden. Now it's his garden. It's his and hers. There are a lot of repeated words in this entire poem. Right? We've got garden, we've got fountains, we've got beautiful. And repeated words in poetry are important. You've got to look at them. But look at chapter 5, verse 1. There's a repeated word that comes up time and time and time and time again. And it's a very important word in the English translation. Let me, you're going to hear it when I read it. This is chapter 5, verse 1. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh. With my spice, I ate my honeycomb. With my honey, I drank my wine. With my milk. If I'm no math major, but I think that's nine times my comes up in one verse. My. It's a perfect 
suffix for their union. They are one, right? Or as kind of Genesis talks about, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. He gathered, he came, he ate, he drank. He is one with her. Their physical relationship is a manifestation of their emotional, spiritual, and financial relationship. They are one. The two have become one. Their physical oneness is pointing to their marital oneness. But, but, but this is the Bible. So just as it sort of is getting hot, the Bible shuts it down. And we now have some new people speaking at the end. I love this. Because the author does not want us to focus on the details of what's going on, but the meaning of what's going on. So, so we read this. And it seems like out of place, but I think it's a perfect commentary on what's going on. We read, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Now, before we get into what this means, one of the questions we have is, who in the world is speaking this? Now, there's a lot of debate. Some think this is like the bridal party. Some think this is some friends. Some think this is the daughters of Jerusalem. But in the 2,000 years of interpretation of this text, the most often interpretation of this text is that this is none other than God speaking. God is actually saying, there's something, there's beauty in what is going on here. This is God's heavenly affirmation of physical intimacy within the bounds of marriage. This is God's benediction over the couple. This is God's approval, stamp of approval on what is going on. Now, I don't know if that's true. I like it. I kind of want it to be true. I don't know if it is true, but nevertheless, it doesn't matter who is speaking these words. What we do know is that there's affirmation. There's a benediction. People are now speaking, saying that this is beautiful and blessed. And I really do think this is the key to unlock this entire section in the Song of Songs. Because all pleasure within their biblical bounds, they're a gift. They're a gift. And the way we don't worship these gifts, the way we don't worship any pleasure, is to realize that all pleasures, all gifts, are meant to be enjoyed, not into an end, but they're a gift to be enjoyed in relationship to God. I I think some people talk about... Lots of times I'm talking with people who are in immense suffering and they're talking about the problem of pain. And I think pain and suffering can be a problem. But do you know what I think the bigger problem is? I think pleasure's a bigger problem. Like in a post-Genesis 3 world, when sin enters, this, this is a broken world, like I get suffering, I get sin. Do you know what I don't get? Why God would bake into the created formula pleasure in the first place. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that odd? I mean, just last night, I was just sitting outside by myself. My kids were outside playing. And I was looking at some geraniums that I just planted. And and they were this light pink with like this hue of white. And I just was sitting there going like, this is beautiful. Like that like you plant it and roots come out and like sun. And like there's this thing called photosynthesis that I can't even spell or understand what's happening. And all of a sudden plants go out. I'm like, what is going on here? It's just beautiful. It's a delight. Or like, I get that ice cream might be invented, but that God would give us taste buds. That like, when ice cream hits, you know, your taste buds, it just like, is like, oh my gosh, utterly chocolate is like glorious, right? And we, we can enjoy ice cream. 
I mean, why does God do this? Well, I think he does it because he's good and he is the best gift giver ever. But more than that, I think pleasure, or I think the Bible is clear, that all pleasures, including physical intimacy and marriage, but all pleasure is bound up to point us somewhere. It points us to heaven. So just think about it. Our text has garden, temple, fountains, galore. And the text ends with eating and drinking and a feast. Take all those themes, smash them together, and they only come up in one place. Phil read it earlier. The last book in the Bible. In the New Testament, when Christ returns, there's going to be a wedding, just like our text, but not like any other wedding. There's also going to be a feast. A feast with amazing food and drink in the city of God. It's pictured like a garden with flowing waters, bursting with life. And at the center of it, who's going to be there? At the center of this is none other than Christ himself. You see, all pleasure, including sex, is ultimately pointing to that ultimate moment. It's why Jesus himself said that in heaven, have you ever thought about this? Jesus says in heaven there's no one will be given to marriage, which I take it means there's going to be no sex in heaven. And you might go, interesting, why? And I think the simple answer is because the purpose and point of sex will have been fulfilled. There is a purpose, there is a point, and it's pointing somewhere. Pleasure is meant to awaken our taste buds for heaven. All pleasures do that. They have a purpose. It's why the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, and the promised land are the predominant illusions in this text. Because the point of their beauty is not that the garden was really great, or it's not that the land was flowing with milk and honey, and it's not that the tabernacle was filled with a lot of gold. The beauty, the true beauty, is that in all three of those locations, God was there. That's what made them beautiful. God's presence. That's how pleasure works. They point us somewhere. They point us to heaven. All pleasures are meant to do that. Awaken in us, stir in us a desire for, a longing for heaven. Some of you are going to go on a hike with Phil tomorrow. I won't be, but some of you are going to go on a hike. And as you get to the top and you survey the beauty of Mount Eleanor, wherever that is, it could be, it could be in California for all I know. As you get to the top and you survey the beauty of it, you could just worship it or you could look at it and say, God's paintbrush, I don't even understand and I can't even fathom. And you could step back and blink and for a moment say, this is a little bit, just a little bit, what heaven's going to be like. Not fully, but it is a little bit. And you can let the longing of that beauty in that moment awaken in you a greater desire for the consummation of all things in God himself. That is how pleasure works. That is the point and purpose of physical intimacy in the bounds of marriage. It's meant to point us somewhere. I think the world might laugh at us thinking we're Puritans, we're fuddy-duddies, boring, anti-fun, anti-pleasure. I think they are far from, we, far from being anti-pleasure, anti-beauty. We want to maximize beauty and pleasure. 
John Piper's right. We are Christian hedonists. In the Old Testament, I'm going to leave it at this. In the, in the Old Testament, there is this old prophecy in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 33. It's a prophecy that God has promised that his people will be restored to a land and that he will restore their sight. Just listen, and I'll end with this. Just listen about what the beauty and pleasure that is going to be restored at the consummation of all things at Christ's return. We read this, Isaiah 33, verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in all his beauty and view the land that stretches afar. That day has not come. That day will come. And whatever pleasures you're experiencing now, or even in the pleasures you're not experiencing, let those in the good and the ill and the longings that have been awakened and the longings that have been forwarded, let those longings point you to God himself. Lord, we, um, we thank you. We thank you that, that we can experience the joys of your world, the joys of pleasure, the joys of marriage, the joys of singleness, the joys of friendships, the joys of this world, and we can do so in light of your goodness and glory. You are a good God who gives good gifts. We don't want to worship lesser things, created things. We want to worship the creator by enjoying you and the things that you've given us to enjoy in their proper context. Help us to do that. Lord, as, as spring is here and the beauty is, is awakened in the Northwest, we, we pray, Lord, that we would not rob you of the glory that you deserve, the praise you deserve, that we would glorify and praise you in all things. And we pray, Lord, that we would experience true pleasure in you and that, Lord, you'd persevere us until the day of your return or the day of our death. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.